we've been walking through the story of Jesus, there's a quote I heard not long ago that said, some images are too difficult to see and yet too significant to ignore. So about 20 years ago, my mother and I were in Washington, D.C., and we walked through the Holocaust Museum, and those words came to mind. So about six years ago, Holly and I and Benjamin moved here to Dallas, and we walked through the George W. Bush Presidential Library, seeing the images and the memorabilia from 9-11, and those words came to mind. But you think about what it means this side of the cross. Some things are just too difficult to see. They're too difficult to put your eyes upon, and yet we realize it's too significant to ignore. We can't help but put our eyes and our gaze upon the cross. What's fascinating is the cross's standpoint from where we are today. There was a time until the fourth century that the early church fathers forbade the cross to be used in imagery and in art. In fact, C.S. Lewis says the cross wasn't shown in art until the last living person who had actually seen a cross had died. And yet today the cross is everywhere. The cross is in, in art, it's in jewelry, it's depicted in gold and jewels and in diamonds. It's on, it's on our, and what we wear, it's outside of buildings. The challenge we have, and, and I think it's an apt challenge for us to think about, every generation that arrives from here until when Jesus comes, the farther we get from the events of Calvary, the challenge is for us not to soften or to glamorize, or to ignore the ugliness and the horrendousness of how Jesus, the Son of God, died. We're looking at Tell Me the Story of Jesus, and we're looking at each of the different phrases from that hymn to guide us in our study this weekend. And today we're, we're going to the cross. Tell of the cross where they nailed him. So much is given to the scripture about the cross. In fact, the significance of Jesus' death in the gospels is obvious. It's obvious when you read through them because only two of the Gospels mention his birth. All four only give but a few pages to his resurrection, but all four Gospels give significant amount of time to the events leading up to his death. Nearly a third of the Gospels are devoted to the death of Jesus. So I want you to start here. If we're looking perhaps at a summary statement, what really took place with the death of Jesus, there's a few things we can say right off the bat. Like number one, this was not an accident. It was not a surprise. The death of Jesus was something that was known long before Jesus ever made his entrance into the world. And so centuries before he came, Isaiah said that he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And notice, by his scourging, his whipping, we are healed. In other words, there was no surprise that the servant of God who came to save the world was going to do so through a gruesome death. David, speaking about his own anguish in a very hyperbolic way, was but a foreshadowing of Jesus would realize in the flesh. When he says, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A compass of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. In fact, you remember even when Jesus did make his entrance into the world, and he began his teaching. You remember the first thing John says, John the baptizer in the gospel of John. He says in John 1, 29, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not talking about the innocence of Jesus. It's talking about the sacrificial lamb, the lamb who came to die. In fact, even Jesus at a certain point, right after Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, began to make it clear to them 
He has a timetable before he heads to the cross. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It was no accident and no surprise. Everything was according to the plan. So when we look at the arranging, how it actually all unfolded, here's a statement after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You would, you would imagine Something so incredibly fantastic would have captivated the eyes of those who saw it. But there's a statement given in John 11, verse 53, that from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The very thing that should have nailed, solidified, this is the Son of God, was the moment they said, we need to put him to death. And it wasn't much long before that time when Judas, one of the apostles, went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad. They were looking for an opportunity. And so it said that they agreed to give him money. And he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him apart from the multitude. He looked for an opportunity. What a great lesson for us. When we're looking for an opportunity to betray God, Satan is always going to provide the open door. So it wasn't long when Judas arranged for all the officers to meet Jesus in his secret place in the garden in the deep still of the night. Jesus was arrested, stood before the Sanhedrin, and in Matthew chapter 26 in your text, and verse 59, it says, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his ropes and said, he's blasphemed. Well, what further need do we have of witness?" Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. I heard enough. The very statement declaring who he was was the final sentence, the final message they needed in order to confirm his sentencing for, for execution. And so in John chapter 19 in your Bibles, go over to John 19. In John 19, Jesus leaves from the Sanhedrin and he goes to Pilate. And after Pilate, he goes to Herod. And after Herod, he goes back to Pilate again. Back and forth, Jesus journeys. Receiving beatings and mockery all along the way. Accusations and questionings on this long, long night. In John 19, in verse 1, it says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And they give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I found no guilt in him. But by their pleading down in verse 12, as a result of all that they said, Pilate made efforts to release him. 
But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. See what's taking place? He's gone to Pilate. He's gone to Herod. He goes back to Pilate, and Pilate sees no reason, no reason to, to deliver Jesus to death. And so he tries to get him out. At first he says, how about instead of Jesus, you have to choose Jesus who you don't like or a convicted murderer and thief, this Barabbas. And they said, well, we'll choose Barabbas. It didn't work. And so here in John 19, he says, maybe if I just torture Jesus, I open his back with whips, and then I mock him so terribly. I put a robe on him and a crown of thorns. If I just humiliate him in pain, that'll be enough to satisfy this bloodthirsty crowd. And it's not. And so this spineless leader, finally down in verse 16, what empty words when it says, then he handed him over to them to be crucified. You don't hand Jesus to anyone. He, he chose that path. But nevertheless, Pilate handed him over to the crowd. And what's fascinating from a scripture standpoint, when we look at the manner of his death, the scripture only gives us a few words to truly describe what really took place. All it says is he was crucified. That's all it says. I mean, through, through centuries, man has invented painful ways to inflict death, long agonizing death on those they deemed their enemies. Crucifixion was something that the Romans perfected. They didn't invent it, they perfected it. In fact, Cicero was the one who wrote, this is uh, from the first century, he says, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him is an abomination, to slay him is almost an act of murder, to crucify him is what? There's no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And so this beaten Jesus, this tired Jesus, this wounded and weary Jesus carries his cross to the place the locals called Golgotha, the place of the skull, and there by crucifixion he is nailed, hands and feet, upon this wooden cross. And that cross is lifted into the air where he is suspended from heaven and earth, hanging only by the nails which held him into that wood. And so the pain from the nails, the pain from the scourging, the pain from the, the, the thorns, the blood he has lost, the fact that he is suffocating, having to pull upon those very nails to get every breath to keep himself alive is what he faced. And for six hours he hung. For six hours, he agonized. Seven statements came from his lips. He quoted scripture. He offered hope to a thief and forgiveness to the crowd. He offered grace and help to his mother who stood nearby before finally saying, it is finished. And when Jesus breathed his last breath, says in verse 51 of Matthew 27, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. What's happening? It's heaven responses to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. This is heaven's response. This is no, this is no dream. It wasn't a rouge. 
because they took his body down and they wrapped it in spices and cloth. They placed it in the tomb and they sealed it shut. It wasn't a bad dream. How do we sing it? There in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Jesus, the Son of God, was killed. Now, here's what it is for you and I. Don't run to Sunday. Don't race to the empty tomb, missing the significance of the fact Jesus died on the cross. The Son of God died. One author said it this way. Sometimes the most horrific images can become the catalyst for our most significant life changes only if we resist the urge to look away. We know that because we have it in one of our songs. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Don't race to the empty tomb ignoring what led to that grave. What do we see, brethren? What are we supposed to see when we gaze upon that cross? What significance this so far away from that, from that Calvary moment are we supposed to see? One thing we see is that there's a message that screams for what took place in Calvary. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in your Bibles is where we're going to go. I need you to go there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to notice the message that is declared from the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased to the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for, uh, search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's the message of the cross? Well, it's a message that doesn't make sense. It's a message by every sense of human understanding is utter foolishness. A God who dies. A Savior who is slain. I remember this a couple years ago. Ricky called me. He and Jody were going home from the movies. And they had just seen the Avengers movie, The Infinity War. If you've not seen the movie, uh, the bad guy wins, and Ricky was distraught. He called me, and he goes, Jordan, that was the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. There were two reasons why. One, he had only seen about three of the 20 films that came before it, which is kind of like starting the Harry Potter series. It's about book seven and trying to make sense of it all. That's about <laughs> But the other reason, I remember what he said. It's really profound when you think about what Paul said. The bad guy's not supposed to win. In what world, in what collective source of wisdom is there victory and defeat? To the world, the, the, the cross is utter foolishness, but that's the point. 
to those who are called by God, who have a different perspective on life and on the cross, the cross is the most life-changing message that exists. It is a message of darkness, of utter darkness that we cannot avoid. Our sins, Isaiah, the prophet says, have separated us from God. Your iniquities in verse 2 have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What a message for us, good, good brethren. That the wages of sin, as, as our brother Sean so, so eloquently said on Friday, it's not a minor incident. It's not a small and significant mistake. The cost of our sin is death. Now think about this. The next time I think it's not really a big deal. It's not a big deal if I lie. It's not a big deal if I cheat. It's not a big deal if I don't put all the numbers in when I do my taxes here in a couple months. It's not a big deal if I cheat on the test. It's not a big deal if I go too far with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. It doesn't matter what I watch. It doesn't matter what I listen to. I would imagine if we had the cross in our minds, we would realize it is a big deal because the answer to sin that God gave was his son on the cross. Let's at least start there. There is hope in the cross, but it's a message of darkness. This is God's response to our sin. But it is a message of power. Didn't you see that all throughout the first Corinthians passage? How often Paul brought power to what the world saw as vain and futile? Especially down when he says in verse 24, Christ, the power of God, the power over sin, the power over Satan. Brethren, the cross is power over death. The language that John would use is that Jesus is our propitiation. That's the satisfying sacrifice. And so if you've ever gone to a restaurant and you see this on the bottom of your receipt when it says paid in full, it means you don't owe anymore. You don't have to pay anything else. It's all paid for. That's what propitiation means. The debt was paid. The ransom redeemed. Justice was met. Or as we might sing it, for on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. That's power. The power to redeem and to save even the worst of us in our deepest pit. And thus it is the message of wisdom. There's a lot of paradoxes that circle around that cross. That Jesus, the light of the world, hung in darkness. The author of life succumbed to death. The word of God, as Peter would say, was silent. The living water cried for thirst. The all-powerful God seemed to be declared and pictured in utter helplessness. That the power of dark darkness was conquered by a lamb. Isn't that the point? Who would have ever thought? Those of you who know your Bible well, when you go through that story, every person, every nation, every family, every moment, every event, Every climax led perfectly to this one central place. As Paul would say, at the right time, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions of sons. Do you know what that means? The cross was no accident. He chose Golgotha. He chose the whips. He chose the crown of thorns. He chose the nails. There was not a moment leading up to or culminating with the cross that was not under God's careful watch and plan. And 
that all they tell is, brethren, it's an immense message of love. Because we ask the question, why did my Savior come to earth? Why on the cross be lifted up? Because he loved me so. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. It's a message. But it's a message then that ought to have a great response in you and I in the book of Galatians chapter 6. It's a message that has a demand. A message that demands a response. Galatians chapter 6 in your Bibles with me. Galatians chapter 6. I want you to see verse, verse 14 with me. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. Galatians chapter 6, Paul would say in verse 14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, we have a lot of boasting we do today. A lot of, we might say humble bragging. I'm just going to talk about myself. I'm going to talk about my family. I'm going to talk about my kids. I got 30 pictures of my dog. I just want to do some humble bragging and show you what I'm proud of. Do you see the deceptive danger, though? And all the things that we believe are right to lean upon or to stand upon or to promote as the things of great importance in our life, hearing the language of Paul. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means what? Look at that and get your life in view and my life in view, our life in view. That I'm not going to boast in my intellect and my strength and my abilities and my accomplishments. I'm not going to boast in my past and where I've been or where I am now. I'm not going to boast in where I went to college and what degree I got. I'm not going to boast in my family name and my pedigree. I'm not going to boast in how good I am and the good things that I have done. And that ought to be a great thing. Because when you think about the message of the cross and then as Paul leans upon it in terms of his boasting and his pride, if you realize from what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, Simple exchange will realize the immense power that we have because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Look at that verse 18 before we get to 19. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable, uh, perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Now stop and put it in. You are worth more than gold and silver to God. Maybe I don't have that. Maybe I don't have a lot of money. Maybe I don't have a good job. Maybe I don't have a lot of friends right now. Maybe I'm not in the in crowd. Maybe I didn't make the team. I didn't make the club. I didn't make the sports. Maybe I don't have good grades. Maybe I didn't get into the college I really wanted to go to. Maybe I don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe I just kind of feel isolated. I don't have all the gadgets and the good clothes and a new car. I don't have a car. Maybe I don't have a social media account. Maybe I don't have any followers. Maybe I'm not married. Maybe I don't have any kids. Maybe I don't have anything that the world says you have to have to be significant and worthwhile. But don't you see verse 18? I'm worth more than my gold and silver to God. I'm worth more than my 401k to God. I'm worth more than my job to God. I'm worth more than my social status to God. I'm worth more than my marital status to God. I'm worth more than any kids I could ever have and any quiver full of a family I could have to God. I'm worth more than anything that exists to God because in verse 19... I wasn't redeemed with those things. I mean the world to God because he gave the most important thing that exists for me, for me, for you. For a young brethren, if we could just get that, I don't have to run this life so desperately trying to cling on to the things for importance and value and worthwhile when I realized it was already declared 2,000 years ago. I mean this to him. 
Now, there's a warning for you and I today, brethren. My, my boasting may not be in my, in my accomplishments, my college career. Brethren, my boasting is not in my baptism. My boasting is not in my perfect worship today. My boasting is not worshiping in a building that has a certain name on a sign. My, my boasting is not in my Bible knowledge. My boasting is not in any person God would open a door to when I teach them the gospel. I am, Paul says, who I am and where I am by the grace of God. That's my boasting. Because there is not a person who will ever enter heaven, heaven's gates that will not share the same story. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, the prophets, the apostles, every person from centuries past when gathered in heaven will have the same message. I'm only here because of the cross. That's our boasting. It's not the good deeds we've done. It's not how we have obeyed God in the way he's commanded. That's not my boasting. My boasting, my claim, my pride, my saving is in the cross, which is why Paul would say, I I'm determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or as I like how the paraphrase would give of Colossians 3 and verse 11, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Now think of that verse. Why draw lines that doesn't matter? Why draw lines on race? Why draw lines on economics? Why draw lines in terms of social status if you're in or out? Why draw lines on politics when there's one thing that really matters? Because none of those things will be discussed in heaven, but the one thing that will always be discussed in every generation of every age is him, the cross. And so we sing, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord, all these vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Or we sing, I, I take, O cross, thy shadow, from my abiding place, I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face, content to let the world go by to know no gain or loss, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. If I'm going to lean on anything, I'm going to lean on Jesus and his cross. If I'm going to brag on anything, I'm going to brag on the cross. Because the only way I'm going to stand in his presence and live in his home has nothing to do with Jordan Shouse and has everything to do with that cross. Which means then that there's a response. Jesus said back in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself to take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a way then that if I want that claim, if I want that life, I have to follow that way. Do you realize what this means, take up the cross? I think sometimes we use this in such an empty and shallow way. You know, I really wanted to go today to get some barbecue. My wife wants to go get chicken, tell a chick, it's just my cross to bear. That's not at all the way. That's not at all the way what that cross is supposed to mean. The cross is a symbol of death. The cross is a symbol of sacrifice. So for instance, when, when John would no love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what we're talking about. It's the way of the cross. It's a way of saying, I love my brethren, my brothers and sisters so much, I would die for them. We say it as in, if there's a car coming, I would jump in front of it for you. But how about this? If there is no car, will you still die for me? That is, will you put me before you? 
Will you empty yourself and your pride and your opinions and your preferences and put my needs and my thoughts before your own? Will I live the way of the cross? How about this one? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. How? And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Honey, I would die for you. I would jump in front of a moving bus for you. I would take a bullet for you. Well, while you're waiting for the bullet in the bus, could you do the dishes? Could you turn off the TV and listen when I have something I want to say? Could you treat me as the apple of your eye and shower me with love and affection? I'll take the bullet, but can't you die for me beforehand? Can't you empty yourself for me now? Don't you see? Those who wish to save their lives will lose it. But those who lose their lives, who empty their lives, that's the message of the cross. The cross is not a message of self-preservation. It's a message of a self-emptying heart. Remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew 20, verse 28, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus not, did not come to be saved, but to save. If we want to follow the path of the Savior, remember what he said? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily. And Paul says, I die daily. I die daily. The way of the cross is a daily death. That every day I'm putting myself to death. That I'm surrendering Jordan under that shadow of that cross so that the priority of my Lord and the importance of others comes first. The message of the cross and the way of the cross is I'm going to empty myself so I might help another to bring about what is best for them. There's a lot of songs and messages that have been written about the cross. <clears throat> There's many, if we had more hours, I would love for us to think about some of the most beautiful messages that we have have been written in song form in our hymn books. But I'll close with this. There was a poem that was written 20 years ago that has meant the most to me when it comes to the cross. And I hope as we think about this, as we think about the message the cross declares, we think about the boasting that demands those who recognize the significance of the cross. As we wrestle with the challenge of living the way of the cross, of a people called after the Christ who was crucified, even the rest of this morning, as we continue to remember Christ, to celebrate his death and burial and sacrifice, I hope these words are going to be ones that will be significant for us. The diadem of pain which slice your gentle face. Three spikes piercing flesh and wood, wood to hold you in your place. The need for blood, I understand. Your sacrifice, I embrace. But the bitter sponge, the cutting spear, the spit upon your face, did it have to be a cross? Did not a kinder death exist than six hours hanging between life and death, all spurred by a betrayer's kiss? Oh, Father, you pose, heart stilled at what could be, I'm sorry to ask, but I long to know. Did you do this for me? 
I did it for you. The whip, the crown of thorns, and the nails. I want you to remember I did this for you. You did it for us. Thank you for listening so well, my good brethren. We're going to have a prayer and a final song and be dismissed to our classes. High school is, remember, we're all together in the far end of the upstairs classroom. Capstone, we're meeting with all the high school, so we're going to go at the end of the hallway where we were yesterday in my class for our blast. Let's have our word of prayer and our final song. Let's stand for that prayer, please. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com questions at thebibleway.com we'd love to have you in person come if you can but thank you for connecting with us